Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwiller, Senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed are for general education and I encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. Today I have with me Dr Rory Ardley. He is a FASM and Retrieval Consultant in our region. We are going to discuss airway management including surgical airways. We will begin with a scenario. You are on shift in your emergency department and a back call comes in with the following information. 45 year old male, fall with severe facial injuries on a construction site. His heart rate is 100, blood pressure 115 on 85. He's saturating at 90% on room air with a respiratory rate of 26 and a GCS of nine. They are 15 minutes away. Uh, Rory, what sort of preparation should we be doing prior to this patient arriving in our department? Hi everyone and thanks for listening. I'd like to start by saying that for a bat call like this, it's important to go to the bathroom and have a snack. Recognising that you're potentially going to be busy for many hours without a break. Moving on from that, preparation has to be as thorough as possible in the time frame that's allowed. Firstly, assembling the right team, and that may involve anaesthetists and surgeons. Uh, They spring to mind. If ENT is available, that would be desirable, but not readily available in most local health district hospitals. Then from a whole department perspective, we need to consider the ward JMO or VMO to come and care for the patients that may present while we're dealing with this critically unwell patient. We could also consider an early call to retrieval services if we think we have enough information to do so. Once the team is available, we need to allocate and announce roles and be clear as we can for that. For example, you're going to be the scribe and perform a coach defibrillation. The other aspect of role allocation to keep in mind is that in critically unwell patients, we want the most senior team members managing the most difficult airway. That is often seen as the team leader role, but in this particular scenario, I would consider using the most senior airway operators, both medical and nursing, being allocated to the airway role. We need to prepare equipment with this patient in mind who has facial injuries and may require a definitive airway which would be predictably difficult. A standard airway equipment checklist should be on all airway trolleys in the LHD and that should be used to prepare. Then going through the rest of our ABCD, thinking about what equipment and investigations we may need, such as an ultrasound machine, as well as thinking about getting the CT scanner and radiology staff ready to receive the patient. More specific to this patient, I would consider preparing for a difficult and blood-soiled airway with extra suction units, difficult airway equipment, and also preparing for a surgical airway, otherwise known as front of neck access. Included in preparing for surgical airway would be involving announcing it to the team and attempting to be specific in how you're going to perform a surgical airway. By that, I mean stating where you're gonna stand and the order and type of equipment that you're going to be using. Oh, thanks, Rory. That's a great overview. 
The paramedics arrive and they give an eye mist handover. The patient has a C-spine collar in place and oxygen saturations are now 92% on 15 litres via non-rebreather. There is bleeding from the mouth and some facial lacerations. Um, so Rory, breaking the initial parts of the primary survey apart, how would you assess this patient's airway? Well, I think we've all had these cases and maybe some have gone well, but over the years, a lot of these cases have likely gone badly. And that is most likely due to a lack of awareness that this is a difficult airway and that the most senior staff should be intubating. Blood in the airway is a potential disaster and there may be other important injuries to identify when you're assessing the patient. I think it's important to start with the basics though and having a really good look and using some objective measures is going to be helpful to the airway plan. In this case we see lacerations but are these lacerations going to be interfering with what we're trying to achieve? Will they hinder us making a seal with a bag valve mask? In which case we may need to use a supraglottic airway or LMA to bag the patient if needed. So we need to get a hyperangulated video ringoscope uh, into the patient which may not function very well if the tip gets covered in blood. So we might consider using just a standard Mac blade and we now have a standard Mac blade which is attached to a video in some sites so that might be our best option. So I have mentioned look at the patient which is the L part of our lemon assessment which we can still assess other parameters using evaluation with the 332 rule, the Malampati score. Obstruction in this patient we know is going to be a problem uh, with blood and neck mobility we know is an issue with this case as a C-spine injury is not ruled out. So all care must be taken to not potentially worsen this. In summary, the anatomy is going to be distorted in this patient. Blood is going to be obstructing the airway. Pre-oxygenation is going to be problematic. And if the first attempt fails at laryngoscopy, our normal airway adjuncts and BVM may be difficult or contraindicated. So we've now called a second doctor who's found no evidence of a hemo or pneumothorax um, and abdominal and fast examinations are negative. A pelvic binder has been applied over the greater trochanters. We now have two good IV lines and fluids on a pump set ready to go. So now the airway and C-spine are our primary concern. It is a requirement in our hospitals to use an airway checklist to prepare for a planned or possible intubation. I thought we might discuss some of the components of this. Uh, firstly, suction. So Rory, when might you opt to have more than one suction device at the ready? And do you use suction, um, any other suction apart, than, apart from a standard Yanker sucker? Extra suction can be a lifesaver at times and I, Yes, blood and vomit is the simple answer to that question, and I guess secretions to a lesser degree. The classic Yankow sucker was designed by an ENT surgeon for gentle suction in ENT surgery, and with a grossly blood or vomit-filled airway, 
it may be best to take the yank out end off our suction and place the tubing straight in the airway. That way we're going to get a better result for suction, uh, especially if there is a large amount of blood or fluid that we need to get out of the airway rapidly. This case will discuss as if there were no COVID concerns. What would you suggest is the best way to give supplemental oxygen to this patient? So giving supplemental oxygen is particularly problematic in patients with facial injuries. An adjuncts or bag valve mask might not work or they may even cause harm. If we are ventilating into open wounds, fractures into sinuses, orbits or even base of skull fractures. We may be left with trying to cover the wounds and using a non-rebreather mask with the oxygen turned up as high as possible. That may be our best option on the day. Nasal prongs at greater than 15 litres per minute as per our apneic oxygenation technique would be worth considering, but often the facial injuries result in a nose full of blood or clots, so that might also be problematic. One option would be a delayed sequence intubation where we sedate the patient, assist their own ventilation with an LMA in place, pre-oxygenate to a satisfactory level, and then attempt to place an endotracheal tube. The major risk with this pro-level move is that having something at the back of the airway induces vomiting. We can all appreciate that we're in big trouble if this is the case, and for me, I would attempt this if we couldn't get oxygen saturations into the 90s and there was a predictably difficult airway from any part of the assessment. Thanks, Rory. I think it definitely goes to show that in a complex case like this where you really might be struggling, just how important it is to have your airway checklist done and all the equipment ready to grab so you can be flexible in how you're going to manage this. ECI advocates using a bougie for all emergency department intubations. Uh, Rory, do you have any tips about the use of the bougie in this setting? So there is some evidence showing a better first pass attempt when we use a bougie. And I don't think this is widely applicable and may not be a good idea in our particular patient. But the take home for difficult airways is that the most senior provider is performing the procedure and that the techniques they're familiar with need to be used. So if they haven't used a bougie to intubate recently or a lot, then they decide with a blood filled airway that that is the time, that may not be sensible. But a bougie is a good thing to know how to use and I would suggest becoming familiar with a bougie and how to use it in more straightforward airways. And it's a good idea for the case that might one day be difficult because evidence suggests that this may be our best approach and may well be the best approach for anyone working in emergency departments, particularly as a solo provider in the LHD. So using a bougie basically gives you a better ability to get into the airway on your first pass. 
Yes, trying to increase that first-pass success rate is important in these critically unwell patients. Uh, the ECI actually have a nice brief video showing an intubation with a bougie. And they also point out you might sometimes need to rotate the tube as you're trying to get it through the cords when using the bougie. Rory, I'd now be interested to see what your thoughts are on the use of cricoid pressure. So cricoid pressure has a lack of evidence that it provides what it is reported to, and that is to prevent vomiting or regurgitation. And there is some evidence that it may cause harm. So I don't personally use it. On the flip side, there's not much evidence to suggest that not using it has a benefit to patients. So it certainly is controversial. I certainly haven't reviewed this evidence recently, however. So I'd be happy for our listeners to go and update themselves if they are still using this. This patient is at risk of hypoxia during the apneic period. One approach is to do bag valve mask ventilation during the apneic period. Would there be problems attempting this in a patient with facial trauma? As I've alluded to earlier, this might be very problematic and we may be adding pressure into open wounds, into fractures that may go into sinuses, the orbits or the base of skull. So we may be left not being able to use the BVM to pre-oxygenate or oxygenate during our intubation attempts. In this case, I think using a non-rebreather may be our best option, and during the intubation attempts, placing a supraglottic airway, such as an LMA, might be a better option for this patient. Yeah, so it just shows once again how important it is to have an individual plan for every patient prior to any intubation attempt. All right, if we now move on to airway positioning, um, personally I find it very important that the patient's not partway down the bed and I'll make sure they are moved up prior to any intubation attempt. But Rory, do you have any other comments about how to optimise positioning in this patient? So with blood or vomit in the airway, Trendelenburg position with the head down may be a good option. And this allows gravity to pull everything away from the airway and suction can complete the job and get it out of our view. So consider that next time. The, the evidence isn't great, but physiologically it makes sense to me. That's interesting, Rory, as often in, uh, with intubations in emergently done, we have the patient 20 to 30 degrees head up but as you said the uh, complicating factor here is the, the blood in the airway. Now with this patient needing cervical spine precautions what do you think the best position for the person providing manual inline stabilisation is? So there are two possible positions and I don't think either is particularly better. Kneeling down behind the patient underneath the airway operator gets the stabiliser more out of the way but may expose them to blood or fluid. Standing on the left hand side of the patient and placing your fingers upwards beside the head 
can sometimes result in arms getting in the way of placing the laryngoscope, but has the stabiliser getting a better view at what's going on, can let the airway operator know if there's much movement, and they're also there ready for another task if needed straight after the collar has been put on. I think either are fine on the day, depending on where the person feels most comfortable. So that would be something that would be good to practice when you're doing your trauma simulations as a team. Now I'll leave a discussion around medications and optimising hemodynamics for another podcast. But prior to us discussing the airway plans, I'd like to mention that the New South Wales ECI has an app called Emergency Procedures, which has fantastic information, including airway procedures and some videos about airway checklists, intubations, and some drills. Now for this case, we used the airway checklist and plan and despite our best efforts, ended up with a can't oxygenate, can't ventilate scenario. Rory, could you please walk us through how would you perform a surgical airway? So in short, I'm a scalpel finger bougie technique person, but it's not that simple. If you picture a two by two matrix for all the procedures we do um, with those that are high and low difficulty on one side and we have the rate at which we perform them as often or rarely, the surgical airway sits well and truly in the high difficulty perform rarely box, which makes it one of the most important procedures we need to practice the mental practice and the physical practice on models, homemade or animal for example. Mental preparation is vital and needs to be specific and detailed. For me, I try to picture which side of the patient I'll be on and which hand does what. So ideally I would move from the airway end around to the patient's right side having my airway assistant and trolley move beside me on the right. With my left hand, I would then identify the thyroid cartilage and stabilize it with my thumb and index finger. I would then palpate the membrane to visualize where to make my incision. And with my right hand, with any scalpel, I would make a longitudinal cut of three centimeters. Then likely needing suction and gauze, I would make a horizontal incision through the cricothyroid membrane. My left hand little finger would then go through the hole and feel the tracheal rings. With my right hand, I would place a bougie down beside my finger and then remove my finger and hold the bougie. Using my right hand, I would then railroad a size six endotracheal tube down the trachea. I did mention either blade scalpel for the technique I use, it doesn't particularly matter, but there is a technique where you cut through the cricothyroid membrane and then turn the blade 90 degrees. Then beside this, you insert the bougie, and I think for this to work, you need a large curved flat blade rather than the pinpoint ones which are retractable. Just consider your blade with your technique in mind is all I would say. Fantastic. So yes, absolutely. I think um, rehearsing and practicing is is really important. So I've seen various ages from 8 to 12 suggested as the cutoff for doing a surgical airway below which it would be advised to do a needle cricothyroidomy. Uh, what, What are your thoughts on that, Rory? 
I think judging the size of the airway that you have in front of you is important. And for children under the age of eight, we, we appreciate it's going to be difficult to try and get a surgical airway performed purely due to the size. So a needle cricothyroidotomy needs to be considered in that age. For this, I would use a 14 gauge cannula Use a syringe that is two mils with the plunger removed and the plastic part of a size seven and a half ETT tube. For ventilating through that, I would find the smallest BVM which we have, which is a neonatal size, because the pressure required is going to be very high. The ECI has a very nice short video on needle cricothyroidotomy on their website. So thank you very much, Rory, for this discussion about surgical airways today. Definitely something that we need to practice and prepare for. Thanks, Louise.